You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. A moment and have remained. You know, he didn't tell you, but after, after the city of Canby gave the award for the best religious organization to Arlene, they also gave one to Ron as the best customer of El Chilito. And uh, he, they, he got a beautiful plaque, and it's a big, it's a chile relleno, and it's beautiful, it's beautiful. You should go by his house and see it. Um, you know, I like to, I like to, <laughs> to keep up with, with Canby Foursquare uh, online and listen in on messages and hear my boy Ronnie's, uh, uh, Pastor Ron, uh, uh, share. And... And I, I've concluded that this, this series that you all have been in, uh, about finding Jesus in the Old Testament, uh, is, 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 I think it's one of the coolest journeys you all have ever been on. I mean, it's, um, it's rich. It's a rich, rich study. And, you know, both your pastor and I were taught, when, uh, whenever we showed up for class, we were taught that no matter where you're preaching from in the Bible, take the shortest path to Jesus from there. Get to Jesus. Because Jesus is the key to it all. He is, he is the key to understanding God's revelation. He is the, the, the key. You know, you know how a key works, right? A key is, is made, uh, works with a cylinder and in a cylinder, there are several spring-loaded pins. My daughter calling me. Several uh, spring-loaded uh, pins. And, and so they don't let the cylinder turn because they're all at different locations. But a key is designed with certain ridges on it. And when the, the cylinder is desi designed for a certain key, when it comes in, it moves those little it moves those little cylinder, those little pins up to the right place that then allow the the uh, cylinder to turn, and and that's that's how a, a, a lock system works. The, the the cylinder recognizes when the pins are moved into their proper places, and then it receives a certain key and the door opens. Now, <clears throat> God's eternal purpose. For the crown of his creation, which is you, his eternal purpose is found in this collection of 66 books written by over 40 different authors, some a thousand years apart, hundreds of miles apart, often with no collaboration whatsoever, and made up of all kinds of genres of literature. There's historical books, poetic books, wisdom literature, prophetic books. This miracle, somehow, by God's inspiration, all of that different input came together to tell one story. The story basically being God's passionate love for you and his desire to spend eternity with you because you were created for eternity. You will exist for eternity, and God wants to spend that with you. And this book is about that process of how God brings that about. It, it, is, it, is, it is the riches of God's grace are found in this. 
But the key, if this were the cylinder, the key to understanding it is Jesus. When Jesus is, is understood in this, then it all comes together and it all makes sense. He is the key to understanding God's purpose for our lives. I think of someone like Paul, who at one time was considered one of the five most brilliant men that ever lived. His introduction to the book of Romans used to be taught in law schools as a, perf as a perfect example of logic in the area of rhetoric. He was brilliant. He wrote half of the New Testament. But he had all of this learning. He was the, he was the blue chipper. He was the top of the class. He was a student of the greatest rabbi of the time, and he was the premier student. And he had all of this knowledge of what we call the Old Testament, but he was missing the key. And he's going on the road to Damascus, and he meets Jesus, and he bows to his knees, and he says, Lord. He calls him Lord. And so now, the Bible says he's in the wilderness or in the desert for maybe three years, and I could just see him. All of his understanding of creation, all of his understanding of the Torah, all of his understanding of the prophets, it would have been all out there. And then when he received the key, Jesus do, do, do. It all fell together, and that's why he was able to write the things he wrote. Scripture says that he was taken to the third heaven and saw things that were not lawful for him to write down. So, and then he said, we see through a glass dimly. Ay, 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 that's humbling. If Paul saw through a glass dimly, what do I see through? Lead? And so, but can you imagine Paul's adventure as he's putting it all together? Now, when we receive Christ, however you received him, watching television, watching a television preacher, sitting in one of these chairs as a young person at a camp, however you receive Christ, sitting alone in your room and saying, Lord God, I surrender, whatever it looked like, when you receive Christ, you receive this amazing gift for entering God's kind of life, otherwise known as eternal life. Unfortunately, so often, even after becoming believers, after becoming, uh, uh, becoming joint heirs with Christ, becoming part of God's family, becoming the recipient of the treasure of heaven, grace, so often we can live as paupers. We, we can live as, as, instead of as king's kids. We, we, can, we can live with the refrigerator full and yet be off shoplifting candy bars from the store. G.K. Chesterton in his book, Classic, What's Wrong with the World, wrote, the Christian ideal or the life of Christ has not been so much tried and found wanting, but it has been found to be difficult and then left untried. That's why a series like this can be so rich uh, because it opens up the treasures of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Now, let's get on with today's journey. When I first saw, saw my assignment from Ron for what I was to preach on this weekend, I thought, wow, Ron, thanks a lot, bro. You'll see why in a minute. But the more I read it and pondered it, I saw something in it that was beautiful, something beautiful emerged. So let's jump in and see if you agree. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. 
They were from nations about which the Lord told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your heart after other gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Now Solomon was David's son from Bathsheba, who he married after his, tra his tragic affair with her. And when she became pregnant because of the affair, he tried to set up a situation where uh, everybody would think the child was her husband, Uriah, the Hittite. That didn't work. So David stooped as low as he could possibly stoop. He arranged to have Uriah killed in battle. And after he was killed, he took Bathsheba as his wife. And God was not pleased with him, which led to incredible consequences. But God loved Solomon, who became king after David died. And he gave him an incredible gift of wisdom. David, I mean, Solomon asked for that. God says, tell me what you want. I'll give it to you, Holmes. And loosely translated. And, um, and he says, you know what? What I need the most is wisdom to rule your people. So God says, wow, okay, I'm going to give you that, but I'm going to give you a whole lot more. But we see a fundamental difference between David and Solomon. David had a singleness of heart of devotion to God. Like you and like me, David was incredibly flawed and made some tragic mistakes like you and like me. But what never wavered was he was sold out in his fidelity to God. He never wavered that. He loved God with all of his heart. For whatever reason, Solomon did not have this. He worshiped God, and he probably loved God. But his heart was never set on worshiping God and God alone. To put it in New Testament language, Solomon had an uncrucified heart. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Now, his big mistake here that we're going to talk about today is that he put politics before devotion to God. Imagine politics creating divisions between brothers and sisters in Jesus. <laughs> like that could ever happen. Everybody kind of shifted in their seat. Now... <clears throat> Here's how that happened. Solomon made alliances, is what you did in those days, made alliances with the nations around him to strengthen his hand and to strengthen the position of Israel in the ancient world. That was his motivation. You're in the middle of all of these different countries that could invade you, that could cut off trade. That, so the way you fix things and set things up in those days is if you would marry a daughter of a neighboring king, now you're connected as family. Now you have an ally. You know that if this king does anything to your nation, it's going to affect his daughter. The children are going to be this person's grandchildren. So you make these strong connections. Well, it, it feels like Solomon was like a kid in a candy store at making these partnerships. The scriptures say he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. A concubine was a woman that you could have sex with, 
but who didn't have the authority to tell you to throw the trash. Only a wife has that authority. A thousand women in his life. I've been married to one woman for 42 years. She's all I can handle, man. <laughs> What's cool is that we're still crazy about each other after 42 years. We don't want to be like that old couple, 80-year-old couple sitting on the porch rocking. And she says, I'm proud of you, Paul. And he says, I'm tired of you too, Ma. <laughs> we don't want to be like that. Now, <clears throat> and by the way, this was crazy to have as many wives. I mean, Jesus hadn't been born yet, but when Jesus was born and began to teach, he clearly forbade polygamy. He clearly forbade having more than one wife. He said very clearly, no man can serve two masters. All right. Now, even if God did allow Solomon to have more than one wife, like he did David, he did make something very, very clear. He says, you must not intermarry with the women around you that are serving under other gods because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. The Bible says that Solomon rejected God's counsel, which is never a good idea, rejected God's counsel, and went like on a Costco run of non-Yahweh-loving wives. And sure enough, exactly what God said would happen, happened. His heart was turned away from devotion to God, to the gods who his wives worshipped. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives. 700 wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Now the key verse for me here is verse 6. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Now once we begin down a path of letting God be subservient to anything else in our heart, well, let's just say things can get dark really, really quickly. Listen to how dark things got for Solomon in the city of the great king, Jerusalem. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Amorites. It says that Solomon, the king of Israel, who built the temple, who God spoke to personally and blessed him and gave him his anything he wanted, he gave him, he began to worship these other gods. Asherah, 
was represented, well, she was a God who was worshipped through sexual practice. In these days, you needed fertility or your people would starve. The big thing was fertility. So that's like the Baal, the Baal that they worshipped, that was for fertility. Asherah was for fertility. So an act that represented that would have been sexual practice. And so she was represented by a, by a, a, a tree, a trunk with no, no branches that was stuck in the ground. And it was a symbolic representation of the goddess. Um, she, her figure was oftentimes carved into the tree. And, and because it was with trees, they, had, they called them groves. So what you see in the Old Testament where they went to the groves or to the high places, this was this place where these symbols were set up. They were actually a, a phallic symbol that, that you would have sex with temple priests and, and priestesses or with each other. And this was the kind of worship that Solomon allowed himself to be involved in. The other is even worse, Molech. This is the one that was terrifyingly horrible. Molech was represented by a big statue with his arms out, iron arms, and there'd be a blazing fire underneath, and they would place their infant children on these arms, and as the infant was consumed by the fire, it was worshipped to this god. And they actually set up a Molech altar right outside the city of Jerusalem in, the, in, a, in a valley called Gehenna, and that's where they did this. Matter of fact, in Jeremiah 19.5, speaking of Baal worship, another pagan god, God says, they have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. Now Solomon did this in this search for significance and power and happiness and fulfillment. He was looking for that. But in the end, his assessment was, what a wasted life I have lived. And here's the real tragedy. He already had everything he needed for significance and power and happiness and fulfillment in serving his God. But he had all of this treasure and he went looking in other places. So that in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 11, he wrote this. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Now, it's easy to judge Solomon. But I shudder to think of what I would have done with that kind of absolute power, unlimited wealth. Now, I don't think it's a good attitude or a helpful attitude to say, wow, what a knucklehead, you know, I could never do that. I prefer the attitude that says, Lord, if that can happen to the wisest man who ever lived, without your grace, I don't have a chance. Lord, I need your wisdom, and I need your grace. So the question we want to ask today is, where is Jesus in this story, and where is Jesus in our story? So let me make uh, three points and may help us get a good handle on that. The first thing we want to do, as you've been studying, is always look for Christ. Look for Christ in the Old Testament. Where is Jesus in the Old Testament? The answer to that question, the short answer, is everywhere. Here's a bold statement that I'll make. If anyone in all of history has ever been saved, 
he or she has been saved through Christ. If anyone is in heaven, if anyone ever is going to spend eternity with God in heaven, if anyone has ever been saved, they have been saved through Christ. Christ is the salvation of God. That is why the word speaks unapologetically. It's not a euphemism. It's not a cliche. It is a truth. Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which he must be, we must be saved. So if I make that statement, and right now you're going, bro, you better back that up. Here's why I say that. The only the only person the only, if anyone's ever been saved they have been saved through Christ by faith what about those before Christ they were saved by Christ how abraham the bible says was justified by faith before Christ by looking forward to God's promise as in genesis 22 13 and 14 Abraham looked up and saw there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And on this day he said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. God spoke to Abraham, I am your deliverer, I'm going to bless you, and through you will all of the nations of the earth be blessed. He promised a deliverer, so Abraham, from way back here, looked forward to the promise of Christ. And so he was justified by faith, not by works. No person in all of history has ever been saved by works or justified by works. The only way to be saved is through grace and grace alone because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody must have their sin problem dealt with in order to come into the presence of God. And the way God dealt with the sin problem is through Christ. In the Old Testament, they were justified by faith by looking forward to the promise of Christ. So Moses was justified by faith, Exodus 12, 7, 12, and 13. He said, then God's command, they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat. And on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So the night before the Exodus, God is going to slay the firstborn of all of the Egyptians. He tells the children of Israel, put blood on the doorway of your houses and the angel of death will pass over. The blood will be a protection from my judgment. So Moses, looking forward in faith, this one pretty darn specific, the blood of a lamb. Come on, man. He said, he, he, he obeyed God and followed God, believed God, so was justified by faith, looking forward to God's fulfillment of the promise in Christ. Not knowing the specifics, but in faith. So, <clears throat> Isaiah 19, was justified by faith 
where it says, in 1920, it says, it will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender, and he will rescue them. Isaiah looked forward and wrote things like Isaiah 53 and so on that describe this coming deliverer. And because they looked forward to the promise of God, they were justified by faith through Christ in anticipation of his coming. We, on the other hand, are saved by looking back at the promise of Christ. We look back at the cross. We look back and believe what he did for us on the cross. And so our sins are taken away, and we stand before God justified by faith, not by works, so that no man can boast. But it's the same Christ. No one ever has ever been justified by works. If anyone is saved, they were saved by either looking forward to Christ or, as we do, looking back to Christ. So he is throughout the Old Testament. Second thing, we should see what happened to Solomon as a warning to us. In 1 Corinthians, after talking about Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.6, now, as these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So, like this story of Solomon, the Bible says it's there to keep us from setting our hearts on things that are not good for us. It says in verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Solomon was charged to with following God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. That could never justify him, but by doing that, he would then be included in the messianic promise of God. Instead, he violated God's law and allowed the worship of false gods to enter his heart, and being the leader, a, a, a group will always go wherever the leader leads, so the nation of Israel was also infected because of the infection in the heart of their leader. I believe that this story out of the Old Testament calls us to do a deep dive in all humility and consider whether we are living with a divided heart. I'm not saying a horrible heart or a wicked heart. It could be a beautiful, upright, good-looking heart. It could be a religious heart that looks really shiny and clean. And not missing any buttons. I mean, Solomon loved God. He built a magnificent temple. I ain't never done that. He built a magnificent temple to God. But because he was able to compartmentalize his heart, he could carry on horrific worship with his wives while claiming over here fidelity to God. And at the end of his life, he looked at his life and said, what a waste. I should have paid attention to Robert's sermon. <laughs> As I quoted earlier, he said it this way. When I surveyed all my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So here's the third and final and the crucial thing that we must do in response to this story. I believe we must respond well to Solomon's example. How do we do that? 
How do we respond to this story from Solomon's life that the Bible says serves an example for us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things? Well, I think that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus gives us a crystal clear marching order in, as a response. Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Can't you see Solomon trying to save his life by having all his alliances and by doing what he thought he needed to do to save his life? He lost so much. That's what Jesus is saying here. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Jesus is saying to his disciples at this point, this, by the way, this thing about taking up your cross comes after Jesus has slowly been unveiling himself to his disciples, slowly who he is, who he is, and their constant question is, who is this man that can heal lepers? Who is this man that can raise the dead? Who is this man that can cast out demons? Who is this man that can calm the seas and during a storm? And finally, he asked the question, who do people say I am? Well, they think this, 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 this. He goes, who do you say I am? They say, and Peter says, you are the Christ. This is the turning point in the Gospels when the disciples realize this is the Messiah. This is the one that they, all the Old Testament saints have been looking forward to. And now we have him in our midst. And so at that point, the whole the gospel turns at that point where Jesus is, okay, now you got it. Here's the deal. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified and die, and on the third day I will rise again. But then he follows it up with this, if any of you all would come after me, Jesus says, you must take up your cross and follow me as well. He says to them, I'm going to a literal cross to die on a wooden cross, but you, if you are my followers, you're going to go to your cross as well. You're going to go to your cross by taking it up every day and following me. Do you remember when Jesus prays in, in Gethsemane, Father, if there is any other way the purpose of the salvation of mankind could take place, please take this cup away from me. And God answers either literally or with silence, there is no other way. Unless you die as the perfect Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world, there is no hope for mankind. So then Jesus says, "There, okay, based on that, your will be done, not mine. Now, Jesus at this point is telling his disciples, following me is not all rainbows and unicorns, not all blessing and everything coming your way. Sometimes it is the difficult path of walking and putting God first no matter what. No matter the consequences, no matter the price tag, no matter the pain, I put you first. You want to cheat on something to make a little bit more money? No, you put God first. You want to sleep with someone who you're not married to? No, you put God first. You want to be served by those around you as opposed to serving them? No, you put God first. This is not salvation by works by what you do, it is an indication of the saving faith that always includes the element of trusting what you believe in. You, 
you, you believe that your brakes are going to stop your car. That's why when you see a little per, a person pushing a little baby stroller across a crosswalk, you wait till the appropriate time by faith. You believe in those brakes. So you put it on at just the right time to stop before you cause any damage. Because you believe, you, your actions tell me that you, you believe. Same thing in this walk of faith. If you were hanging from a cliff on a branch and you, there, you were certainly to die, and I was on top and I let down a rope and I said, bro, grab the rope, let go of the branch, I will know whether you believe me or not. If you don't believe me, you're going to keep holding on to that branch and eventually lose your strength and fall to your death. If you believe me, then you're going to reach over, grab this rope, and you'll be saved. Now, what ultimately saves you is the fact that you believe what I said. And then your actions indicated that. Now, is it easy to, by faith, say, Lord, I, I, I'm, I'm going to put you first? Does it always feel good? No. Does it always have immediate benefits? No. Sometimes it has significant costs. Sometimes you see other people get ahead taking shortcuts and cheating, and you miss out on that party. But you ain't missed out on nothing. You are headed to a place of incredible blessing beyond your wildest dreams. Solomon took these shortcuts of these alliances thinking he was putting his nation ahead, and it ended him a broken, empty man going meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. I have forfeited what was really important for what was actually worthless. Now, the way Jesus said it is, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and you lose and forfeit himself? The devil offers the kingdoms of the world, um, but the only thing that comes from following the wicked one is a lake of fire forever. Jesus said instead, I came that you might have life and have it Abundantly. Now, <clears throat> you don't get there. I don't get there through any means except the cross. The cross is the means of salvation, but the cross is also the way we live the life that Jesus calls eternal life, abundant life, the life he dreamed for us. The cross not only saves us, but it gives us this model to a rich, abundant life. So what is our cross? Well, how, how do you take up your cross and follow him? That sounds weird. What did Paul mean when he said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul is talking about is living the crucified life. I said earlier that Solomon hit tragic rocks and capsized because he did not have a crucified heart. How do we live a crucified life? When Jesus says, anyone who would come after me, take up his cross daily and follow me, what does this mean? Okay, I'm going to clarify it real quick. A cross is not anything anybody can put on you. Nobody can do that. To, to call a an unfair boss across, <clears throat> or a non-understanding spouse, or a physical infirmity across? No, that only makes you a victim. We are not victims. A cross cannot be placed on you. You can only take a cross yourself. I love this moment in the movie, The Passion of the Christ. 
It's when Christ is being crucified, and they lay him on the gravel, and over here is his cross, and over here is Jesus beat to smithereens. And the producers got it right. Jesus sees the cross, and he actually crawls over to it and lays on it himself. That is incredible symbolism. It is Jesus saying, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I go to the cross because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, here it is. Taking up your cross daily is doing whatever it takes to put Jesus first this day. Whatever Whatever it takes to put Jesus first this day, that is taking up your cross. That looks very different for me than it does for you. My cross looks different because my life is different. Your life is different. My circumstances are different. Your circumstances are different. Jesus shared this after I said earlier, Peter had said, you are the Christ. He's laying down all of the cards on the table. Until this moment that the disciples get this, and until the moment we get this, Jesus can be a good luck charm, a friend in high places, fire insurance. But when we meet him at the cross, realize that what he did for us, he did because of God's passionate love. And then this day, I am going to put you first, Lord God, whatever it takes to put you first. You ever have those moments with your spouse where things have maybe gotten, <laughs> you've done something or she's, uh, and like, maybe like diplomatic relations are broken. I remember Didi and I having some situations like that where we're laying in bed and like there is an Arctic breeze blowing through the bed. There's an ice wall right here. And I can think of those times, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Of reaching out and taking her hand. And things begin to thaw and break. Now, what, what, what is that? What is that saying no to your pride and no to your self-righteousness? No to your ego. And say, Lord God, you've called me to love this woman and lay my life down for her. It ain't about me about your purposes for us and touching that hand and the thaw begins but what is it in our life today today where is God calling you to take up your cross and follow in him when we do this when we begin to develop this as a lifestyle we go from being a believer to a disciple we begin to learn the path of discipleship as I close I remember this old saying that goes wisdom comes with old age But so often, old age comes alone. I can look back on my life from this vantage point and say honestly that that I have fallen towards Christ with my decisions, my responses, my choices. And when I have fallen towards Christ, my gratitude and my relief is immeasurable. And yet I can think of the thousands of times I have fallen towards selfishness or ego or lust And the result has been regret. That's really the only two paths we have, discipline or regret. And I can can hear an echo of Solomon at the end of his life saying, the uncrucified heart I've lived with is such a regret. And here's the good news. The past is gone. 
everything before this moment. It's gone. You can't do anything about it. It's gone. All you have is right now that will then lead to the future. And to begin today with a fresh understanding from Solomon's life, Lord God, I want to live with a heart that is undefiled. I want to live with a crucified heart that takes up your cross daily and does whatever it takes this day to put Christ first. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about next week or next year. Jesus said there's enough evil there to take care of itself. Today, trust God today. Put God first today. And then our lives become an accumulation of todays. And our lives become a life of a crucified heart that just leads us into the abundant eternal life that he created for us. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good to us. You have been so kind and merciful and forgiving. You've never treated us as our sins deserve. But you've always met us with grace. And I pray, Lord God, that this tragic life that Solomon lived, such blessing and yet such foolishness, I pray, Lord God, that it would speak to us over the ages and that we would do, Lord God, as Paul and as Peter encouraged us to see that and to understand it and to take it as guidance on how to live. So, Lord God, I pray in the name of Jesus that today, as we go through this day, you would bring your word to our mind and we would remember today, just today, I am going to do whatever it means to put Christ first in my life today and let those days accumulate until the day we see you in the face. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.